Hello and welcome to this episode of Military History Inside Out. Today I speak with Stephen Bowd, who has written about mass murders during the Italian Wars from the end of the 15th century to about 1530. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Stephen Bowd, author of Renaissance Mass Murder, Civilians and Soldiers During the Italian Wars. Thank you for speaking with me. Right. Good, to, good to speak to you. So first, tell me, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? Um, it, it started off, I suppose, because I um, was interested in a, a small town, uh, a town in Italy, uh, northern Italy, called Brescia, and I wrote a book about that in the Renaissance, and it was it was a town that had been part of the Venetian Empire. Um, so, uh, and then it was the site, it had been a site of a particularly a bloody massacre during the Italian wars. The city had been sacked and, uh, reportedly thousands of civilians had been killed. Uh, and so I was asked by, uh, a couple of, uh, British historians to write an essay about, uh, mass murder for a collection of essays uh, they were editing. Um, and so in the course of writing that essay, I suddenly realized there's a lot of other cases of mass murder of civilians during the Italian wars, and no one had seemed to ri- had, had written about them in a, a, as a whole. They, 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 they were sometimes mentioned specific, they mentioned figures, they said maybe, maybe a few thousand had died, uh, but that was sort of left and often left in the background of histories of the Renaissance, histories of Italy, even histories of the Italian wars don't tend to spend much time talking about all the civilians mm-hmm. uh, who were killed. So I thought it was a good idea, a great idea, and I decided to expand the uh, the essay into a book. Okay. And what, so what years does the, the book cover then? Uh, so it covers the, the invasion of Italy uh, by um, the French king in 1494, um, and he was sort of encouraged by Italian powers to invade, particularly the Duke of Milan. Um, and then it goes up to right about 1530, when most of the fighting on the Italian peninsula between the French king, uh, the local powers, the emperor, uh, the Germans, the Spanish, and so on, moved elsewhere, mostly moved off Italian soil, although it continued a little bit in the area called Piedmont hmm. in the northwest of Italy. So I thought that was a good that that seemed to be a, a good point to which to to to, to drink, draw the book to a close. Mm-hmm. So how is the book broken down? Do you go chronologically, or do you? Um, no, I, I, no, um, no. It's um, broken down into. I'm just uh, just to remind myself. Uh, so what I do is I start off by talking about the practices. Of mass murder, so I'm really interested in uh, how it began, how how events of mass murder erupted in particular places at particular times. So what was the mechanism? Uh, what, what were the reasons behind uh, these events taking place? Looking at it from the point of view of uh, the soldiers, I suppose, first of all. So what it, what was it they were interested in getting out of these uh, massacres? And then I look at the look at it from the point of view of the civilians. So trying to understand their practical lived experience of uh, of these marauding armies. So that's the first section. Then the second section, I go into the theories. 
there's a lot of theories, you know, which justify uh, extreme behaviour in war, as you probably know. There's all sorts, you know, whether it's the modern term collateral damage, for mm-hmm. example, which is uh, armies will accept as as as, necess- as um as um, something which is uh, unavoidable in warfare. So I was interested in looking at whether we find in the Renaissance similar theories which justify and excuse um, the, ma- the mass murder of civilians. And they're there. There's plenty. There's plenty of them. Hmm. And then in the final section, I look at how uh, incidents of mass murder were represented in poetry, so the poetry of war, uh, often written by soldiers, some of it written by the civilians themselves, in art, of course, the Renaissance is well known as a period of great flourishing in art and artistic production. So I was interested to see if any of these events were reflected in the art of the period, helped shape the art of the period. Um, and uh, so, and then I compare, I sort of then put the mass murder in context of genocidal acts through history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to understand, to try to see if it fits into some of the models that uh, discussions we've had about genocide, mm-hmm. uh, which have particularly arisen since the uh, obviously latter part of the 20th century. So that's the um, that's that's the overall structure of the book, this tripartite structure. So how many events do you uh, end up covering in this book? How many different um, episodes, say? Well. There, in, in the book, I, I think I identify, oh, I don't know, I, I didn't, I've never counted them all up. I, I have a table with the main events, the main reported events, so there's probably a, a dozen, a couple of dozen, something like that, mm-hmm. for this period. Those are the ones that, you know, th- there's most evidence of single concentrated events of mass murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, beneath, but beyond that, there's the, there are a lot of, um, sort of local, you know, lots of local smaller incidents which were taking place, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, all through the period. So how many of these, um, were all these massacres incident to some kind of military activity or did some fall between periods of military activity? It's, it's, an, it's an interesting point. I think, yes, both. Um, some are associated with sieges, so... Um, at the end of a siege, maybe three months, say on average in the Renaissance, the Italian wars, a couple of months, three months, um, the, uh, besiegers might get into the city and, um, they had a sort of right to sack the city, uh, because they defeated it. They were victorious in arms, um, and civilians might, were, would usually resist this. And so inevitably this would lead to violence. Um, and so in, in the course of military, ordinary military operations, there would mass murder took place. It was understood it to take place. It helped, as I say, help subjugate cities. It also helped to punish them. And it was a way of uh, setting an example for other towns further down the road, you know, to say, if you don't surrender immediately to our army, we will treat you as harshly as we treated this town. So that's quite acceptable. Between, and, and then, yeah, between, uh, I suppose, warfare in the Italian wars where there concentrated bursts of activity and warfare in particular parts of the peninsula. So, um, there were large, there were large parts of the peninsula that were untouched by these activities. Um, but 
I think that the, 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 there's not so much a clear distinction between um, the, the, the periods of peace and war, perhaps, as we might think. Mm-hmm. And that occupying troops, for example, would could cause a great deal of devastation uh, just through their occupation. It wasn't necessarily sort of active military engagement, but it was part of the process of them passing through, perhaps retreating back to their own countries or uh, being welcomed in and being resident in a particular town or uh, state in Italy, but nevertheless behaving with violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this often, the, the relations between civilians and soldiers uh, deteriorate, could deteriorate very badly. So how much of a sense was there that civilians were maybe off limits unless they did something? Or was it basically, if you're not one of us, we can kill you if we feel yeah. like it? I, I, my sense is that civilians are fair game. Um, there's a there's a feeling that uh, there's a sense that civilians are um, uh, in a sense inferior to soldiers. I think there's often with some of the the, the military groups, the German Landsknechts, for example, who have a very strong sense of esprit de corps and their uniforms and uh, in their sort of training. They are very arrogant. They're often depicted as having a very arrogant attitude towards civilians, and they see them and they see them all as fair game, whatever they're doing, whatever side they're supposed to be on. And of course, no one with civilians. It's very difficult or impossible for soldiers to tell who's on which side. As far as they're concerned, they're all potential enemies. Mm. They're all people who could potentially aid their enemies by whether it's through fighting, turning, you know, picking up arms, as many peasants do. And with quite alarming effects. There's lots of stories of uh, peasants uh, sort of uh, mutilating, tracking down and mutilating, ambushing and mutilating uh, soldiers. Uh, so these soldiers passing through, often passing through a hostile country, would have viewed everyone with suspicion. Uh, but even even if there was, even if they knew they were friendly-ish, they, many soldiers desperate for uh, basic goods, pay, and money, booty, other things probably turn on civilians and could cause harm to them. Because an effective way, the most effective way of extracting booty and ransom is basically to throw someone off a, a roof or a height, which might harm them but not kill them. But obviously, uh, it could often kill them uh, if they didn't calculate it correctly. So yeah, they're all they're all fair game, I would say. So you sort of answered my next question, but um, were most most of these incidents um, foreign foreign troops against Italians, or was there much of Italian against well, Italian? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, um, the, as I said, I, I described the French coming in invading Italy as if you know there was a, a very strong uh, national uh, division. Well, in fact, there are Italians fighting in the French army. Uh, and there are French who joined the Italian armies, and then the Germans and Spanish are involved. And again, you find a mixture of uh, nationalities in all the armies. So, for example, when I looked at the Spanish army records in Samancas in Spain, I found records, lists of uh, members of, of, of squadrons, and it included Italian names. So they may well have been passing through and fighting with their fellow uh, Italians. But of course, Italy at this time is a divided uh, place. It's not a unified nation. So there are already these sort of uh, hostility 
a hostility existing between, say, Florence and Venice, for example, and so they found themselves on opposite sides on occasions. So it's a real mix. Um, and it's that's interesting because uh, sometimes people have wondered whether these explosions of mass murder are related to national nationalist hostilities, you know, to chauvinism or some other kind. Um, and it, I don't think it's so much that as perhaps at an army level, but at a squadron level. What, what I see is that what I found was that um, at the squadron level, um, these squadrons were often of one nation with one region. So, for example, Gascon squadrons or uh, uh, and so on had had a tight, very tight knit, very strong sense of identity, and they would often act independently of the general uh, in order to reap benefit for their own squadron, and they seem to work very effectively and be particularly violent and lead the charges into towns and uh, and lead uh, the massacres and so on. So, so it works. So, nationality is important, more important at that level, I think, than. A national army than any national army level, which doesn't really exist in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so when an enemy army is, say, coming through a town, I, I get the feeling that the rich citizens could move themselves out and protect themselves, and it's essentially the middle class and poor who suffer. That's my mm-hmm. guess. Um, is that the situation, or how does that work? Well, I've, I think the best evidence... For that, I mean, perhaps is um, the records of the, the 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 plunder that's taken, the the ransoms and the plunder that's taken, and there are records of uh, of this, which 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 indicate the occupation and status and wealth of the people who were held to ransom. Uh, some of them were violently attacked, as I said, thrown off roofs and uh, and so on. And um, that's one indicator. That indicates that actually the rich uh, are there. There are there are some quite wealthy people uh, 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 among those who are captured or taken ransom. My feeling is that either the rich were caught up in sieges and didn't have time to escape, so they form part, they, they, they take a part in the town, um, or um, they didn't wish to escape. They wanted to stay in towns and preserve their wealth from looters, for example, and uh, if this was the best place for them, um, or uh, you know, so I don't get a sense that the wealthy necessarily. Of course, the most famous example of this is in the sack of Rome in 1527. That's the the, the most famous sack of the Italian wars, in, uh, and supposed to be one of the most murderous. Uh, but a lot of the letters from the sack of Rome or describing the sack of Rome do describe uh, the very wealthy being targeted. Cardinals, for example, who are incredibly wealthy people at this time, are losing apparently thousands and thousands of ducats and uh, paintings and their finery and so on. And there's a sort of series of letters written by Isabella d'Este, the Duchess of uh, Mantua, who was in Rome and took into her palace in, in Rome lots of very rich noble people in refuge. They were just totally taken by surprise, I think, uh, by the, the the turn of events. And so this 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 is not uncommon. People are just totally surprised or, or, or taken unawares by this often, mm-hmm. including so, the wealthy. So considering the the theories about this that you research, yeah. Um, 
was there any sense that uh, maybe you have mercy on the enemy so that they have mercy on you if if situations change or it, it feels like it was just a free for all of destruction and, and killing and plundering it's 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 yeah I mean um there is yeah certain certain parts of it is a free for all but um to to a large extent perhaps more than you might expect it is a coordinated and organized and structured event. So there are certain stages you have to go through, for example, with the siege, uh, you know, that, 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 that allows you, to, that gives the siege validity, and then it gives the validity to the plunder that takes place once um, the town surrender is taken by force. Um, and I think there is an under that's completely understood uh, by the, the the commanders that civilians will be harmed in the course of this. And indeed, there are deliberate instructions given or commands given or plans made for the killing of civilians. So the act, a strategy, what I call the strategy of terror that the French particularly use early on. Uh, and then as they encounter lots of garrisons, fortified garrisons in Italy. Um, and the, the, so the strategy of terror is quite effective there. That's now these garrisons are obviously full of soldiers, but they, it's quite clear that they're also uh, used by civilians for protection. People flock to the garrisons for protection and defence mm. and in hope of safety mm. as armies appear. And so the problem is they end up being collateral damage in that sense. So at that early stage, I suppose, civilians are collateral damage as part of this organised military effort. Later on, they're deliberately targeted as the armies encounter all of these very wealthy, highly populated urban centres in Italy. Italy is the most urban, uh, apart from the low countries, the most heavily urbanised and wealthiest area of Europe at this time. Uh, so there's no coincidence that we have uh, these Saxon cities and violent Saxon cities by uh, these armies hungry for wealth. Hmm. It's almost like the barbarians are still sacking Italy. <laughs> well, this is what they, this is, they were always comparing them to the, the ancient, the, the medieval, the early medieval barbarians. They're always saying the French, but they go further than that. They say the French are worse than Attila and the Huns, uh, because they say at least Attila and the Huns didn't rape our women, didn't desecrate our churches, so it's claimed. And that's the accusation made against the Germans, the, the French and so on, that they have no shame, they have no, no religious morality at all. And um, of course, the Italians would say that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that there were some pre-planned uh, massacres, but uh, among the events you studied, how did it break down as, as far as maybe spur of the moment versus planned? Um, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, I tried, it's obviously, there's only so far you can go because the sources can be conflicting, depending, you know, if you're a victim or a, uh, you're a survivor or you're on which side you're on. Um, it's, um, some of them seem to be spur of the moment, prompted by, uh, it's interesting, often prompt, often squadrons of, of, of troops, individual squadrons who defying orders or worried that they see that peace talks are underway and that these peace talks mean they will lose their share of booty mm. because the peace talks and a settled peace usually means less booty 
Yeah. And it means booty which will go directly to the general and not to who will, who's supposed to use it to pay troops or distribute it fairly. But this very rarely happens. And so I think the soldiers would be, you know, watching the, scanning the horizon, as it were, watching what their commanders were doing or listening to rumours about peace, possible peace. And if they felt that peace was imminent, they might attack. Uh, they might also spur the movement also seems to sometimes happen in reaction to insults uh, or uh, in defense of honor. Um, so, for example, uh, one, in one town, uh, it's rumored that the local inhabitants have, have poisoned the wine, have poisoned the local wells and, as a way of uh, harming the troops, harming the soldiers. And so the soldiers sort of uh, sack the town violently. They murder a lot of civilians in as this kind of uh, tit for tat, as a kind of reaction uh, to 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 that, or they might be reacting to the the, the civilians uh, taking to arms and throwing rocks down from walls on them and attacking them and so on. And that that it could be one. It's sometimes reported one small incident could could provoke that. Even even words, an exchange of of of, of insulting words, could lead to. Uh, an attack. So, yeah, some of them are planned, but yeah, you have these key incidents of, of, of spur of the movement violence. Um, how how is the violence um, generally committed? Was it you know clubs, swords, guns? You know, and does it even matter? It matters. It does matter. This is the period when we're told when we're always talking about technological developments. You know, the military revolution. Which includes, you know, the development of the musket, for example, and the, 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 the better drilling and org- and training of troops to use these, these, these more, uh, uh, these types of ballistic weaponry. But, um, really, I, I found that the, that the military revolution in that sense didn't, didn't, wasn't a key factor in, in the violence. That, that what the troops are doing is they're either using their daggers and close, daggers and swords in close combat, uh, as they would do, as they've done for centuries, uh, centuries, uh, or they were uh, throwing, as I've said, throwing people from great heights. Mm-hmm. And in Italian towns, there's lots of, because there's a lot of tall buildings, fortified, tall fortified buildings and so on in Italian towns at the period. There's lots of opportunities for throwing people from great heights. Belfries, for example, church towers are used. One priest describes how he was thrown from a church tower and on the way down by a soldier and on the way down he prayed to God for intervention and was saved uh, and landed in a, in a sort of soft like, heap of hay or something mm. and survived. And, and as I've said, this is, this is cheap and easy. This is a quick, cheap, easy way of dealing with people, threat, either threatening them to extract ransom or simply eradicating or killing them. Mm-hmm. Because I, I read through some of the events I think you discussed and the numbers of people killed, uh, you know, I guess between hundreds and then sometimes thousands. Yeah. Um, that takes time and effort, yeah. you know, with your hands to kill that many people, you know. Yeah. I would say the, fi- the figures, those are the reported figures. Mm. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's there. What we need is really good archaeological evidence. So mm. what we need to find are the mass graves, for example. Uh, and there, there, they've been one or, there's been a few mass graves excavated in English, near English battle sites like Towton, 
um, that those are of mass graves of soldiers. Hmm. Uh, but mass graves of civilians, unfortunately, we don't haven't been excavated. So those would really give us a lot of a good idea of how many were killed, uh, how they were killed. You know, evidence of breakage and stabbing and so on would be really interesting. My feeling is with those figures is I, I always think you need to divide them by ten, by a factor of ten. I think what they were doing and all whenever they whenever they give these figures of thousands and thousands, they they're just giving an impression of lots of people. They just want to give they just want to convey the message lots of people died. Mm-hmm. But but the, when we do have evidence of numbers, more precise evidence, for example, there's a really lovely there's amazing diary entry where someone describes the burial of the dead after a massacre and he describes how, how many bodies could fit on the cart that took them from the site of massacre to burial mm-hmm. and how many times the cart did the journey and so you count and you get a sense there of a, of a plausible calculation of deaths that's that's in that case it's 250 bodies mm-hmm. and interestingly enough there are two chroniclers who say give the same number elsewhere so you know, I'm very cautious. I'm always very cautious about these figures, but in at least what you know, in some cases, they seem to be right. These numbers were huge, and that's not counting the people who die of the disease in the days and weeks and months afterwards, mm-hmm. because these 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 events caused huge uh, disruption. And of course, having rotting corpses lying around is 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 a really uh, just encourages disease spread of disease. Mm-hmm. So they all those deaths need to be accounted uh, to include those I haven't included in this report so much. So before we turn to uh, the resources you used for the research, um, are there any other themes or issues in the book that we haven't touched on that you want to mention? I think I think we've um, touched on the one the, the really the ones that, that really struck me the, the, the deliberate strategy of terror, uh, the calculation as well as the improvisatory nature uh, of the um, uh, of the, the civilians of the, the, the experiences i'd also say that um, what struck what also struck me was the role of women in all of these events and there's some interesting sources describing women drilling and dressed as soldiers and drilling and taking up arms into uh, uh, civilians in defense of their, uh, of their cities and towns and slots. So that, that, that was something that was new to me, uh, that was interesting to me. And there's a lot of commentary about this uh, at the time, a lot of people saying, noting this and uh, noting it's quite a, a significant um, development. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, so as far as the resources you used, where did you find your, um, you know, your, all the documents you used? Well, I started off, so what I did was um, I started off looking, there's a lot of printed diaries and chronicles. Obviously, in Italy, it's a very, it's a relatively highly literate society in the Renaissance. So a lot of lawyers and notaries and doctors and uh, locals are writing, scribbling down uh, observations about their local area on all of these uh, uh, towns across Italy, mainly central northern Italy. We don't know, we don't have so many sources from the south of Italy. One, I found one chronicle from Sicily, but south of Naples, very, I found very little. That's, that was a, that was a difficulty for me. Um, 
Uh, so I looked at those, and they were all, I would just want to mention um, the Institute of Historical Research in London has an amazing library, and I spent a lot of time in there, and all these chronicles were up on their shelves, and you just, I just pulled them down, and I worked through them all, it was just a, a wonderful experience as a researcher to do that. And I didn't know, I didn't really know when I started looking whether I'd find a lot of, of evidence in these diaries and consoles, but actually, as it turned out, there was a huge amount, very little, almost nothing had ever been, no one had ever really paid any attention to it. So that was really wonderful. And then once I once I looked at all the printed stuff, I went to Italy and I looked at all the, um, I went to visit all the towns that had been massacred or sacked, and I went to the archives in each of those towns, and I dug out things like compensation claims, burial records, um, letters from soldier, French soldiers' home that had been seized, for example, um, a whole range of really interesting sources, unpublished sources in manuscript. Because, of course, Italy is, is a, for me, a researcher on Italian history, it's an amazing place because they do have so many manuscripts and evidence and materials that you, that you can work with. And, and generally, quite well, pretty well organized in a state archive, in their state archive system. Hmm. How about your language skills? Did you have any um, difficulties with any of the languages? Not. uh, I was a bit worried. I went to Spain um, to look at the Spanish military archives from the period, Um, uh, and I was a little bit worried about whether my Spanish... I'd never really learned Spanish, Um, so I was a bit worried about... My, my Spanish holding up. Well, in the first place, the, the staff there understood Italian. Uh, so I was okay. I was okay with that. And then reading, reading the Spanish of the period, actually, it's not, there's not such a, a big difference between the Spanish and the Italian of the period, which, with which I'm used, I'm used to reading that. So that, that, that was fine. There were some challenges with um, the poetry. Some of it's written in a very sort of humanist Latin. Uh, which can be quite difficult to translate. It's quite tricky. And, and other, some of it is also written in the local dialect or vernacular. Um, and that can, that can be very tricky. And I chose not to try and translate that into poetic English, but just to translate it into a, a readable prose, um, which I kind of, I think is, I think was the best choice. I don't think I wanted to inflict my, bad poetry or as it were my bad poetic translation i'll leave that to my brother (laughs) so um how about did you mention church records or how about the vatican do you think they'd have anything Uh, yeah i i the church church records i came across one interesting one uh, a a false insurance claim made by by some monks who claimed they'd lost thousands of ducats of goods in a sack, but it turned out that there's a note on the claim saying this is all a lie. <laughs> so I'm afraid that although the church was great and it, it gave refuge to people, churches were where people gathered and hid in their strong walls and, and, and strong doors. Uh, they, they weren't always uh, completely honest about uh, their activities. There are, um, I mean, in the Vatican the archives, there are there are materials relating to the sack of Rome. Um, those, though, have been very well used and studied. The Sack of Rome, there have been th- at least three books, four books, specialist books, on the Sack of Rome mm-hmm. itself. 
because it's it's Rome and, and, and people are you know want to want to. So I didn't. I decided. I made a decision not to make use of those. Although the Vatican's a wonderful, it's a superb place to work. It's very well resourced, as you might expect, and it's very incredibly well organised. But I decided. I thought, well, there's already. And actually, in my book. I deliberately wanted to sort of move away, move focus away from the sack of Rome, just because it has had so much attention already, and move on to the other, all the other cases. That was a, a sort of deliberate uh, decision. Um, and you touched briefly on archaeological evidence. Is, yeah. is there anything of use for your research? I I looked. Um, there's not. No, there, 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 I've, I've not, I didn't come across anything, uh, really. It's, it's not an area I know particularly well. I am in a school of history classics and archaeology at Edinburgh, so I had some, uh, some really useful discussions with my colleagues in archaeology about this, uh, but they weren't, they directed me to the Towton battle, uh, excavations, uh, which are really interesting. Uh, really interesting in terms of also in how divergent as much as historians, archaeologists can be in, 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 dis- in judging what all the evidence means. So the Towton burial, on the one hand, it's described by some archaeologists as likely to be uh, a site of a mass murder. A whole set of other archaeologists looking at the same evidence say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's just a normal burial. Um, so even if you find archaeological evidence, it's hard. It's obviously incredibly hard uh, to interpret. So that that would be, I, I, yeah, I would have liked to have looked at some, but I just didn't find any that in Italy was relevant. So if anyone knows, let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, what what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Um, let me think. What was most enjoyable? I think visiting the sites, I think you know, going to the, the places where all this happened and going into the archives and what you find, and you find unexpected things. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great pleasure. And there's also, I think, a great pleasure in talking to the local people, archivists, about this. And of, of, often for them, uh, these incidents are um, incredibly important in their local history. You know, for locally, they're really important, and often you'll find there are local books written about them or celebrate, you know, commemorations of them, and so. So it was really interesting engaging with that and, and, and meeting people who were really, and they they were very interested in what I was uh, trying to do. Although obviously, for some people, I found it quite a repellent, slightly mm. repellent yeah. <laughs> topic, which is understandable. Yeah, it is quite uh, grim. You mentioned before um, that you did find a lot of um, a lot of writing had been done, um, contemporary writing on civilian massacres. It's interesting that only now are we looking into that, considering how important it seems yeah. they considered it then. Yeah, it's it's it's. I'm. We're looking. It's important. You know, we're looking at it now. I think partly because we're living through another age. In which civilian in sieges and civilian massacres are are, are in the forefront of the news. Mm-hmm. So Aleppo, uh, Sirte, 
you know, these places, Syria has been a war of sieges and civilian massacres mm. often. So I think it's that, that's, that, I think that's partly why uh, it's become of greater interest. And of course, more jet broadly, I suppose, in the 20th century, because of uh, strategic nuclear weaponry, uh, civilians are in the front line, as it were. And generally, there's been an interest in, in, among historians, as, as many as, of course, you'll know, in home, the home front and in the civilian experience of war. And I think, but I think there's, because of the way warfare has developed, there's, there's particular reasons why the civilians come very much to the fore and can be, you know, the civilians of the, of the Italian wars now are being rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you were surprised about uh, women being trained. Was there anything else? Uh, that surprised you in your research? It surprised me. Um, I think, yeah, I think what's, I think what surprised me, another element of surprise was how persistent the excuses and justifications for the massacres of civilians are. And I use present tense. You know, we're often, you know, I, I went into this not perhaps naively thinking, Oh well, Geneva Convention. You know, vaguely thinking. Well, we've got the Geneva Convention, and there's all the Union Convention of the Rights of the Civilian or, or people in war, and so on. That we've we've got all these things. This is this is surely established a long time ago. The civilians were protected. Were a protected group. Not at all. Um, we may have moved away from the Renaissance when the civilians had a negative connotation. Uh, the way they were described and, uh, and the terms that were used, often negative terms. But um, this change, which is supposed to have happened in the 17th and even 18th centuries, where the civilian becomes this protected group, doesn't really happen. It's still, you know, the, the justification for killing civilians is still there way into the 17th, 18th centuries, late 18th centuries. Uh, and so someone as famous as, uh, you know, Hugo Grotius, Grotius is supposed to have developed you know, this idea of warfare in which civilians protect to some extent. He even he's saying, no, 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 there's there's civilians, there's there are all these circumstances in which civilians can be killed. Mm. And basically it's often along the lines of, well, if it is military necessary, if it mm. is militarily necessary. And as far as I can see, that's not changed that much. The language is slightly different. Mm. Uh, collateral damage. But but it's in there. It's there. Um, so, uh, so that, you know, so, so that, that, that perhaps through my ignorance, naivety, uh, I found, you know, I found quite surprising that it was so, that this, this kind of, that this has been so persistent. It's a very interesting connection between the centuries and that concept. Between the? The centuries, you know, yeah. the military necessity just, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Argued yeah. that. Yeah. I'm sure there may be military people which, which, if I said this to them, would laugh and say, "Well, of course, you know, this is not this is not news to us." And uh, I've been listening. I've been listening too much. The theorists, you know, they're, they're, obviously there is a whole panoply of rights and uh, and protections uh, that were developed, especially after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, um, but the, the States have found ways around this. They found ways of reclassifying what they're, they're doing, and, and the so-called new wars, which involve guerrilla tactics or you know remote uh, killing, killing by 
uh, remote mechanisms and so on. It doesn't always, as you know, distinguish with 100% uh, accuracy between a civilian and a combatant. How do you, this is a question that has been raised, mm. how can people tell from a silhouette through down a TV screen at such great distance whether this person is hostile or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what Was there a particular question um, that was very difficult to come to a conclusion on? I, I know considering the sources, there's many questions, but yeah. was there any that really held on to you that, that took a lot of your time and energy? To, 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 yeah, to get to the, to the bottom of, um, uh, what was the trickiest? I think, um, I think one of the things that was trickiest, I, I've got a whole chapter in the book on, uh, Machiavelli. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, well known, still read as the author of The Prince. Which is this presented as this, this handbook for cynical statesmen, you know, how to behave, appear outwardly virtuous while uh, all the time scheming uh, uh, and achieving your ends. I think one of the things which I found trickiest to pin down was Machiavelli's view of, of, of murder of civilians, actually, and interestingly enough. Hmm. He's, in some ways, he, uh, I think, I think, to, I think in the end, I would say that he was a realist in the sense that he recognised that massacres of civilians were a part of war. They, this kind of violence was just something that that's what happened. This is what happens when states grow and clash and so on. But I would say that in the end, he's not he's not someone who's advocating survival of the fittest or dog eat dog. He's looking for a framework which will check put these ten these which will put into tension or check these destructive forces. Mm. Otherwise, you know, of civil civil and military. Otherwise, as he rightly sees it, society will pull itself apart. Mm. So society mm. will end will end up living in a desert. Or in you know, uh, there'll be um, deserted, uninhabited countries who have destroyed themselves because they've allowed their military to run amok. So I think that's that was very difficult, partly because of the way he writes. He writes in a very ju- playful, elliptical, seemingly contradictory way at times, and so really teasing out what he's doing there, the thread of his argument. That was, a, that was, for me, a big challenge. I'm not sure whether I've succeeded in doing that in the chapter, but I think I got, I think I got a bit further, a bit closer hmm. to understanding his view of mass murder. Hmm, okay. Which I hope will be of interest to people interested in Machiavelli. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, was there anything you came across that emotionally moved you in some way, either positively or negatively? Yeah, I'd say negatively, uh, what happened uh, was that um, when I first started reading through these uh, accounts of mass murder events, um, they did have an impact. I was, I did, I did have nightmares. I was, I was sleeping very oddly. It was a very strange, it was very strange. They did, because I was just reading these day after day after day and so many of them, hmm. uh, which hadn't happened before. So that, that was a, a, a negative impact. Um, a positive impact, um, you mean emotionally? Yes. Something that made you particularly happy, maybe. I don't know. In this, <laughs> in this I'm instance. I'm worried about saying there was something out of this topic which made me that made me particularly happy. <laughs> um, 
I'd say what I think what made me particularly happy was that it was an opportunity for me to write about the mass of ordinary people. Hmm. So I was really, really keen that this I under I, I, that, that that people when they read the book get a sense of what's going on from the point of view of the ordinary person in the path hmm. of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, too often in the past, the civilian had just been there'd been a nameless group. And they're described in num- reduced to a number. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of collapsed this, this collapsed time. So I was really keen to, to reconstruct and rescue individual life stories. So I'm, I, where I can, I name the individual civilian and try and say something about their experience of being thrown off a roof. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, to extract ransom, for example. And we have account, first-hand accounts of those. So that sort of thing is wonderful to find. For me, and it was wonderful to sort of present them in that way and to reconstruct, even try to reconstruct a kind of emotional life and reaction and how they're dealing with it, which is not always easy. Um, people don't always write about their emotions in the Renaissance in quite the same way we do, but I, I think I was able to, to go some way to do that. So that for me, that was very satisfying mm-hmm. thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, you know, when you think of that period, you always think that people are very religious then, um, you know, and yet you have these things going on and it, yeah. you know, it just makes you think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and religion play, you know, it plays some interesting roles in the events. You know, there, there, there's, I told you, you know, as I said, churches are refuges, um, but uh, there's no, there's no sense that priests or religious figures are spared this. They are all in it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was quite striking. Like Would you say there was any kind of Protestant-Catholic divide among the events, or did that not even seem to matter? No, that's a, that's a, it's an interesting point, because it's often, it's often said that at the sack of Rome, the German troops, one of the reasons they were so violent or so distracted was because many of them were Lutheran, were Protestant. And so they took the, they saw Rome as a sort of uh, seat of the Antichrist, of Antichrist, the Pope to them. They'd been told by Luther that the Pope is Antichrist, was Antichrist. So they took great pleasure, it said, in scrawling Luther's name on Raphael's frescoes and so on and so forth. But equally, the Catholic Church took great pleasure in tarring the German soldiers as Protestants. And so you, there's a kind of a problem. Uh, my, uh, my sense, my feeling is that there may well have been Protestants in the army, but I think it, it, was, it, it, it was convenient to the, 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 the Roman victims and the church to maybe exaggerate uh, that, 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 the, the, the role of, those, of Protestantism. And religion, in, in in that sense, that's my hunch. I'm sure there'll be lots of people who say I'm completely wrong, but uh, mm. that's my feeling. It's been somewhat exaggerated. Mm. Uh, some of these stories about uh, the, the, the the religious antagonism. Mm-hmm. So, what do you hope the book will do? Well, I think what so what I hope it will do is first of all. Um, make people who look at the Italian wars think about the civilians more, keep them in mind when they're writing about what's, what's, what's going on at the time. Um, I hope it'll also be 
uh, or remind people who write about Renaissance Italy that while they're looking, you know, while Raphael or Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo are working on their art, doing all these things, sculpture and art, that there's all this violence going on right around them. And indeed, they're often involved in this violence. Michelangelo is uh, involved in military fortifications, for example. Raphael is based in Urbino when he's he's young, and that was a centre for the gathering of troops. And many of his early sketches are of soldiers. Uh, I think, I hope it reminds people who write about Renaissance that this is this is an incredibly violent period in which the the presence of troops, the 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 sight of dead bodies, is not that uncommon. That it does happen. And this, how, I want them to ask themselves, how does this, uh, how did this impact on the Renaissance? How did this shape the debates about humanity? And the debates about what it was to be a human, uh, how did it shape artistic production? An artistic production which often dwells on the naked body, the nude body, the musculature of the nude body and so on. Mm-hmm. How did, how did this dismemberment and bodily disaggregation, uh, impact on, on, on that world? So it's not all about, Renaissance isn't all about harmony and, uh, this, you know, the third man, you know, we have the, the speech given by Orson Welles as Harry Lyne, mm-hmm. saying, you know, what thought the, the, the Swiss have had 500 years of peace and love and goodwill and what have they given us, the cuckoo clock. The Italians had the Borgias, uh, uh, and so on and war, constant warfare and they gave, they gave us the Renaissance. So there's, there's an interesting connection between this, this terrible violence and, uh, and the cultural impact. So I think those two mainly areas, those two main areas from one side wants that to affect. Hmm. Actually, your answer kind of raised a question I didn't ask before, which is, how often did one of these events actually achieve the goal, you know, like ending resist military resistance, or or did it just... It it does, it does, it is effective. So, um, one of the earliest massacres uh, is uh, followed by Effectively, the surrender of Florence. Uh, they, they hear, they hear the reports that one of their outposts or garrisons is massacred. Um, this is a sort of, I think it's, it has a huge psychological effect. There's, that sets a panic. You know, it really, it really makes, it's a demonstration of ruthlessness. Um, and so I think that, that undermines the confidence of some of the, the rulers. And so, for example, as I said, Florence decides to come to a sort of agreement with the French rather than sit behind its garrisons and its fortified places and hope and, and they can tough it out. Mm-hmm. So it does, and you know, and, and that's one example. There are other examples. It's not necessarily that the French or others had superior technology. The Italians had very good technology. And indeed, I think their fortifications are a lot better. Everyone says, oh, well, their fortifications weren't that great, and they were, and they needed to be reinforced later in the 16th century. I don't think that's entirely true at all. I think a lot of what's going on is it's a psychological warfare. It's very effective, as of course many generals, many leaders have used uh, have found it was some of the most effective. Have found it using the mind. Mind games work just as well, if not better, than a show for than the actual force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, can you speak to any difficulties you had in finishing the book 
and getting it published and how you over, overcame those? Um, the book, well, the book, I have to say, it, 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 it was, um, it, it, I, it, I, wrote, I wrote it very uh, easily, actually. Um, it came together very easily. I think the most difficult parts were the, the, the chapter of Machiavelli, as I said, trying to puzzle out what, his, what he was thinking. And perhaps uh, the, 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 the chapter on poetry was quite difficult. It was like, you know, we've got a phrase in a British phrase called nailing jelly to a wall. And it's, uh, which is, the, I don't know if that's an American phrase, but, for, <laughs> but, but it's the idea of trying to, or something that's so kind of difficult to handle, pretty, trying to get it into shape, trying to, uh, to, to, to and, and, and I think trying to organize a chapter on the poetry of war uh, for the Italian words was a bit like that, drawing out the I got there eventually, but that, that was really tough. And then all I did was I submitted, um, I thought about, uh, I sort of looked to the finished product manuscript mm-hmm. and I thought about where, where it would likely work best as a book. So I just, I got in touch with Oxford University Press and they were interested. I sent it to them and they fairly quickly said they, they, the, the, the readers they sent it to liked it and they, they suggested a couple of changes but nothing major. Mm-hmm. And so after that it was very smooth, very smooth indeed. Nice. Um, what's your next writing project? Uh, <laughs> I've just finished this one. Um, I'm quite interested in cowardice. Um, there's been, people have written about courage, written a lot about courage. I'm quite interested in writing about cowardice because it's a theme which emerged in this book, in that, um, that, 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 that the civilians obviously are often characterized as cowards, uh, that they're described as turning tail and running uh, on their heels. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of, some of the soldier narratives also, also talk about, well, not some of the narratives also talk about fear and emotions, the emotion of fear. Uh, and, and I'm quite interested in that. That seems to me to be maybe a slightly more neglected, you know, courage everyone wants to talk about. The cowardice perhaps less so, and perhaps that appeals to me as <laughs> someone who probably would be uh, very effective, uh, competent. Well, I would say, you know, the concept of fear is still interesting, even if it didn't lead you to run away. You know, if you still yeah. fought on, just yeah. those feelings... Yeah. Exploring there's that. A, there's a, yeah, there's a nice discussion by one of the six, one of the Renaissance writers, and he talks about the feelings. He can contrary. It's about the, the, the fear of death, and he says he, he says that, that that people fear death less in the midst of a battle than at home dying in bed. And he says it's the sense that in the midst of a battle you're with all these other people in the same position as you, hmm. uh, whereas. When you're at home in bed, you're alone. That's it. In, in the sense, you're the one there, face to face with death. Mm. And so it's quite. I thought that was quite a, a striking and unusual sort of meditation discussion of these feelings. And I, I'd be quite, you know, it'd be interesting to see if there's any uh, anything more like that. So mm. that's one idea. Yeah, makes me Marcus Aurelius. Pops into you know meditations comes to mind just thinking about that subject. Well, I'll I should I, I'll look at that because obviously I should now broaden my historical 
scope from from the Renaissance uh, <laughs> something much much bigger, and this could be a history of fear throughout the ages. I'm sure there's plenty of material. Oh yeah. <laughs> so where can people find um, your work? Are you online? You know, social media it's or anything? This book. Well, this book and your your thoughts. Okay. Um, this book, I think you can get it as an ebook. Um, I've also organised. I also organised a, a workshop on women in war last year in Edinburgh, and I work. I'm organising a work co-organising my colleague Sarah Cochram and John Gagne in Sydney, uh, a workshop in June in Edinburgh on the shadow agents of war. And there's two websites uh, which are uh, which highlight the papers and discussion which are going on in those. So if anyone's interested, they can look at those. I suppose they can just Google shadow agents of war. For example, mm-hmm. or uh, and, and you'll, you'll find it fairly easily there. So that's sort of something that's war related that's uh, online. Mm-hmm. And the book you can find the book on Oxford University it's, Press. Yeah, it's Oxford University. So you get as the ebook, mm-hmm. or just order it as a uh, uh, expensive hard copy. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, no, I think we've I think we've covered everything. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about, yeah. Okay, good. Well, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chris. This podcast has been presented by War Scholar. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for more great interviews and military history information. Your visits help support this podcast. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez War Scholar. That's Chris without an H, C-R-I-S. On Facebook under War Scholar. On YouTube under War Scholar 1945. And on Twitter under War Scholar. Thank you, and I hope you return to this podcast for more great military history.